welcome back to What is a Lutheran? Interlude, Lutheranism Outside Germany. Welcome back. Last week we finished up our history section of the podcast. However, one problem with our focus on Luther and his story was that it was a bit German-centric. In fact, if you only listened to those episodes, you would get the impression that Lutheranism was a German-only club. However, it is not. Many different nationalities make up Lutheranism today. So how did Lutheranism spread elsewhere? Well, I hope to answer part of that question today. Now, I say part because we are really only going to deal with Scandinavian Lutheranism. At a later date, I will devote a couple of full episodes to world Lutheranism. Suffice it to say for now, though, do not make the mistake of thinking that Lutheranism is a Euro-American thing. There are presently more Lutherans in Africa and Asia than anywhere else. But leaving that story for another time, we continue to Europe for a moment. Obviously, Luther and Lutheranism had a great deal of success in Germany, but that was not the only place Lutheranism thrived. Lutheranism also found a home in Scandinavia. Our present-day Scandinavia is made up of five countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. Turning back the clock a bit, in 1397, these five countries were united under the Danish king in something called the Union of Kalmar. And don't worry, that's not on the test. By the time Martin Luther was nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church in 1517, Christian II was the Danish king. Christian II was born in 1481 to King John of Denmark and Christina of Saxony. In 1513, he took the throne of Denmark, and because of the union of Kalmar, Norway and Sweden too. Similar to the Holy Roman Empire, Denmark was an elective monarchy, that is, the nobles elected a new king from among the old king's relatives. Much like Charles, Christian would have problems keeping his nobles in line. In 1515, he married Isabella of Austria, who is the sister of our good old friend Charles V. All these guys are related, often literally. Another person Christian was related to was Frederick the Wise. Good old Fred was Christian's uncle, so when Christian heard about this fancy new Lutheran theology, he asked his uncle Frederick to send a theologian to teach at a Danish university. Our friend Karlstadt was actually for a short time the person that was sent, but after the Diet of Worms, Christian was no longer interested in the Reformation, probably because he didn't want to make his brother-in-law an emperor of most of the world, Charles V, too mad. However, as the bard says, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Christian was not an especially popular king. That he is known in Sweden as Christian the Tyrant should tell you all that you need to know. Sweden was not particularly happy with the union of Kalmar at this point anyway, and so wanted out. Christian did not want them to go, and so there was a war that went from 1518 to 1520. While Christian did manage to briefly retake Sweden, he couldn't hold on to it, and by 1523, everyone had had enough. Christian was deposed, and the throne of Denmark and Norway was taken by his uncle Frederick I, not Frederick the Wise. Christian II was exiled. Frederick I was far more open-minded about the Reformation than his nephew. He encouraged Lutheran teachers to teach, forced Catholics to share their churches with Lutherans, and encouraged the first publication of the Bible in Danish. In addition, Frederick encouraged nobles to seize Catholic property, especially monastic property. 
Frederick would die in 1533, and at this point, Christian II tried to make a comeback. A three-year civil war followed, but in the end, it was Christian III, son of Frederick I, who would win. Cementing the Lutheran place in Denmark, Christian III would be crowned king by a Lutheran pastor, not the Archbishop of Lund, as was traditional. Christian III would then spend most of the rest of his reign imposing Lutheranism on Denmark and Norway from the top down, which was resisted the whole time. In Sweden, however, things were a little different. Sweden was now independent because of the successful leadership of a noble known as Gustafus Valsa. Gus was made king by the Swedish Diet, and the new king faced a problem, money. Fights for independence are expensive, and Sweden was basically bankrupt. However, the Catholic Church owned about one-fifth of all the land in Sweden. Also, Pope Leo X, see, all our favorite characters are making a comeback in this one, had supported the Danes against the Swedes, so Gus was not all that well disposed to Rome to begin with. So in 1527, at the Diet of Vesteris, Swedish law allowed for the confiscation of Catholic property and the teaching of Lutheran doctrine. Over the years of Gustavus's reign, Lutheranism would gradually be introduced from the top down. It would not be until 1593 that the Church of Sweden would officially adopt the Augsburg Confession. But for all intensive purposes, they are Lutheran right now. This top-down character would give Lutheranism in Sweden and Scandinavia a different flavor than Lutheranism in Germany. Remember that in Germany, Lutheranism had been a movement that was imposed from the bottom up. Luther was a German populist. It was the hierarchy, the bishops, archbishops, and the pope, and the supreme secular authority, the emperor, that resisted the Reformation. This means that German Lutheranism is not all that fond of authority. Bishops were people to be suspicious of, and not to like. However, the Reformation came to Sweden and the rest of Scandinavia in the opposite way. It was top-down. The supreme secular authority, the king, imposed Lutheran teaching on the state church and the hierarchy, who in turn imposed it on the people. Therefore, many of the administrative practices and the ecclesiology, that is, the theology of the church, were kept in place. As an example, the Church of Sweden still to this day maintains what we call the threefold office of ministry. The threefold office of ministry basically says that bishops, priests, and deacons are all ordained roles of the church. In the ELCA today, you will notice that our bishops are installed and our deacons are consecrated. Only pastors are ordained. This may seem like a particularly nitpicky detail, but the word usage is important. The question basically comes down to this. Are the roles of bishops and deacons mostly functional roles within our church, or are they offices Christ has laid out for his church? Swedish Lutherans, because of their history, came down on a different side of that debate than German Lutherans. That different history impacts us even today. By and large, a Swedish Lutheran congregation is going to be a congregation that is more high church, that is, it worships with a more traditional liturgy than a German Lutheran congregation. Lutheranism spread to other places in Europe, and at some point I will probably do a small interlude like this to handle those places, like Transylvania. But this seems like enough history for now. What do I want you to get out of all this? Well, I don't have a clear point. Instead, I have something more like homework for you. As you go out, think about your Lutheran church and start asking about its history. 
Is your congregation the descendants of German immigrants, Swedish immigrants, Danish immigrants, Transylvanian immigrants, Ethiopian immigrants, which I promise we will get to soon enough? History makes a difference, so learning the history of a congregation is important. And while history is important and something worthy of celebrating, also begin to think about how that history can sometimes be a weakness. For a very long time, Lutheranism has been defined by its ethnic heritage as much as anything else. The Lutheran Church grew when there were waves of immigration from historically Lutheran countries. However, now that the immigration from those places has ceased, so has a lot of the growth. Perhaps this is a sign that we let our ethnic identity define us more than that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next time we are going to have another interlude. We are going to tell the story of George Spalatin, who was personal secretary to Frederick of the Wise and a great help to Luther. He usually doesn't get a lot of airtime, and I think his story is cool enough that he deserves a few good minutes. I hope you can join me next time for What is a Lutheran? Mm-hmm.